Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, and I'll be your host for this episode. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And for those of you that have been regular listeners, you know that uh, one of my passions is social transformation. And uh, it's been difficult to find people that I really want to have an in-depth conversation with in that area. I've done a lot more work on the show in the area of healing and spirituality, and I'm really excited about today's show because our special guest is a man named John Renish, who um, is really an amazing person, and you'll get to know him very well today. And he does have a passion for social transformation and has really walked the talk and really put a lot of thought and care and energy into the area of social transformation and becoming who he needs to become to be an effective uplifter and a transformational agent. So, John, welcome to the show and <clears throat> welcome to this conversation. Thank you, David. A pleasure to be here. Now, I don't normally do this, but because John has such depth and breadth of experience, and I want you as the listener to have a context, a powerful context for your listening experience, I'm going to take a few minutes and read from <clears throat> John's website at Renish, R-E-N-E-S-C-H dot com. He has a page which is the About John page. So that's renish.com forward slash about. So if you'll uh, indulge me for a few minutes, I want to read you what John put on his website so that you can have an empowering context and an appreciation for the possibilities of this conversation. John Renish is an advisor, mentor, futurist, and writer on matters of social and organizational change. He believes that commerce holds the key to bringing about a global shift of human consciousness, thus creating a future of tremendous possibility for humankind, the possibility that will allow humanity to transcend the inevitable future that can be projected from current trends. Well, we could just stop right there. That was a mouthful, but I'm going to keep going. He offers a variety of services and an internet as an international keynote speaker, private mentor, and advisor to consultants. He has published 14 books to date, his latest being The Great Growing Up, which received a 2013 grand prize for nonfiction from the Next Generation Indie Books Awards. He publishes a monthly newsletter called John Rennish Mini Keynote. John has four decades of experience as a business owner and entrepreneur, 
He left his chief executive position in the real estate investment industry in the mid-1980s, and after a period of personal introspection prompted by his concerns for the future, he embarked upon a new path. From 1990 to 1997, he served as publisher and editor-in-chief of New Leaders Press, dedicated to publishing progressive business books and periodicals. John has created 12 business anthologies on the subject of business and transformation. Over 300 visionaries have contributed to these books. John is now a global futurist, humanitarian writer, and keynote speaker on topics that integrate the subjects of business, human consciousness, and possible scenarios for the future of humanity. He has also become a social activist, an advocate of social and organizational transformation, and awakening what he sees as the latent potentialities of the human race. John is not an ordinary futurist who mostly downloads from the past. He listens to what wants to happen, and with unlimited possibilities, he becomes a champion of that future. John is a member of the practitioner faculty for the Center for Leadership Studies, member of the International Editorial Board of the Journal of Values-Based Leadership, past member and project advisor and guest blogger for the World Future Society, former member and inaugural board chair of the Shaping Tomorrow's Foresight Network and co-founder of Future Shapers, LLC. As a keynote speaker, John has presented challenging questions and observations to audiences in Tokyo, Seoul, Brussels, London, Sao Paulo, Porto Alegre, Zurich, Amsterdam, Port of Spain, Caracas, Gold Coast, Brisbane, Budapest, in many United States cities. He's received much praise as a speaker and a visionary. John has also addressed numerous classes of NBA students, including University of California, Stanford University, University of San Francisco, and others. The late Warren Bennis, leadership expert, author, and distinguished professor, excuse me, <clears throat> and distinguished professor emeritus at USC, called John, and I quote, a wise elder who shines with wisdom, unquote. John has been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, the Nikkei Financial Times, Business Week, Public Radio's Marketplace, CNBC TV's Ron and Sana on Management Today Show, Business Talk Radio, United States, National Public Radio in the United States, Forbes, both in Brazil and the United States. Chief Executive in Industry Week magazines on the subject of consciousness and business. The Futures magazine calls John a business visionary. So I wanted to go over that with you so that you would have a greater appreciation for the breadth and the depth and the compassion and the commitment that John brings to his life, to his work, and um, to this conversation. So thanks again, John, for all who you are and for all you do and for your willingness to be with me today uh, so that our listeners can really um, glean, glean the gold <laughs> from all of this. My pleasure, David. So uh, John and I have 
a lot in common in terms of our commitments and our passions. You know, we both have a passion for transformation. We both have a love for the potential of a truly free market to be able to inspire creativity and bring out the best in human beings. And, um, and we both, you know, had a lot of challenges along the way, you know, being practical visionaries, um, the ability to innovate, to, to communicate a possibility and a vision in a way that a community is willing and able to adopt that innovation and have it make a difference in their life is, is quite a journey there. You know, what you need to become to have that happen. And the journey along the way is really uh, quite a hero's journey. And so I want to open it up, John, by just giving you the floor here to share what you'd like to share in any opening comments that you think will um, contribute to this powerful context for listening for the listeners today. So let me turn it over to you for a while. Okay. Well, David, first of all, I want to thank you for reading from my website. Uh, I don't know about people that other people that have websites, but it's been probably a year since I looked at the copy of my website and just reminded me of, of uh, it needs to be changed regularly. Um, so that all took me back to long ago, a lot of that stuff that you read. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's really very simple. In an experience I had back in the early 1980s, late 1970s, um, was the experience that human beings could be doing a lot better than we're doing. And it came at a time when we, I was in a workshop that we were spending several days looking at how to improve organizational effectiveness. And I realized just how bureaucratic or dysfunctional uh, organizations become almost when you have two people that form a when you have two people working together. Uh, as soon as you go into partnership or hire one person, it seems like the bureaucracy starts to build. And it just amazed me that rather than creating synergy, which is a, a sum larger than the, the sum of the parts, we are in most cases in organizations, we're creating the opposite of that. I'm not sure there is a word for that, but the, the negative synergy, I'll call it for now. But human beings are not doing very well in terms of what their capacities are, their potential. And so that has fueled me for, um, well, getting close to three decades or four decades. I'm not sure about the math on that, but since the 70s, um, it's been a while. And so my work has been fueled by both the writing and the speaking and the coaching and the businesses I've started have all been aimed at wakening up the potential in people. And when you talk to individuals on a private basis, most of them will nod their heads in agreement with that assumption that I'm there, that assertion that I'm making. Uh, and I believe a lot more in listening to how heads nod rather than what people say, because by the time something comes out of your mouth, it's already been through the thought machine and thought has been given it and all the considerations have been given it. But the body kind of just sometimes just nods uh, and affirms automatically without going through that process. So I get a lot of head nods and a lot of uh, 
acceptance that we are operating way below. So the question then is, what's it going to take for us to get out of the talking about conscious leadership, which is my current focus, uh, which is still dealing with the executive body because they are the ones that are, the corporations are running the world. Uh, and if we can get the corporations to wake up a little bit and, and their cultures become a little bit more conscious, and that takes some people in those organizations to wake up and start becoming conscious leaders, then we have a chance of reaching greater potential. Even if we just double our performance, it'll be a huge improvement over what we're doing right now. And one of the things that I think is uh, important for your listeners is a fact that some people aren't aware of, which is that we spend, in this country alone, we spend, I think the 2014 measurement was $16 billion in leadership development, $16 billion. So around the world, it's probably safe to say it's like $30 billion worldwide, is spent in leadership development. And that's trying to make ordinary people, ordinary managers and leaders into better leaders. And yet, if you poll the world, as people have prone, are prone to do, you'll recognize that nobody thinks we are do, exhibiting much in the way of real powerful leadership in the world today. We aren't getting better leaders, but we're spending tons of money trying to. And when you look, when the, the Gallup poll a couple of years ago showed that fewer than 4% of the people that authorized this, these huge expenditures of money for leadership development training were, were felt they were very effective. So we're basically wasting people's time and wasting lots of money doing something in an, an effort to get better leadership, but we're not getting it. And we keep doing it. I mean, normally you'd say, well, that was a waste of time. Let's try something else. But they just keep doing the same thing time and time again. And, and the background that you and I share is this background of personal transformation. And one of my contentions is the reason these leadership development programs don't work and we don't, aren't getting better leaders is they're all coming at it from a learning perspective. Like if you give the people enough information in their head, they will then become better leaders. And that doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Unless there is some reinvention or personal transformation involved, that person's going to go back out after that leadership training and basically make the same decisions they were making before it. So I think that's my opening spiel, and I'll turn it back to you. Okay, so I agree with you that um, if I were to put it into my language, Gene, I would say that without an ontological approach to leadership and to who we are as human beings and the possibility of being for human beings, that we're pretty much just doomed to more of the vicious circle. And there's a whole set of skills and ideas and practices and connections that can flow from that new possibility of being. Now, there, there is some interesting work being done in the world by a small number of people these days uh, who are committed to applying an ontological approach to these issues with best business practices. Um, are you finding that it's best, it's the best use of your time right now to be doing your own thing or to be aligning with some of these other 
efforts or some combination of both? Where, where do you sort of see the landscape right now in terms of uh, where to get the most bang for our buck? If you're, t- you're talking about in terms of programs that, that can create large-scale transformation? Right, like for example, uh, for people like you and me and people that are really interested in this issue, we don't want to be reinventing the wheel and having a bunch of people doing very similar things who aren't in communication with each other. But on the other hand, if you feel like there's something that's missing from what's currently out there that that you could be providing mm-hmm. that's distinct, it might be better for you to be doing that or some combination of all of the above. And just sort of, I agree with you that in your assessment of uh, where things are and, and, and where things need to go in order for things to start working. But in terms of um, beginning to look at strategies and tactics, um, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. John, how old are you now? I'm 78, I'm pushing 79. Okay. And so, you know, I'm sure you look at, I know I look at, okay, um, in the time I have left in a body on this planet in this life, you know, where's the best place for me to be putting my energy Mm -hmm. to have the greatest impact, the greatest leverage? Are you finding that, um, that when you look at what's out there and what's needed, and how you can best serve. Are you finding that there are some big gaps, things that are missing out there that you're moved to provide? Or are you finding more that you want to partner and align with things that are already out there and maybe make them a little bit better? What's your assessment of the current lay of the land for people that want to be part of this movement of going from point A to point B? Well, in, in my case, David, uh, it's a little of both. Uh, one is that I have made a, a significant effort personally to reach out to people, thanks to things like Google Alerts and other search engines, to find people that are doing work that's in the same arena, you might say, not necessarily doing the same thing we're doing, but are working in the area of waking up leaders. And there's a number of them, I'd say at this point, I have talked to two or 300 people that are either individual consultants or consultants with large firms that are doing work that I consider more than just uh, book learning, that are doing something transformational. Uh, But I also started Future Shapers with my partner uh, several years ago because I saw one particular niche that wasn't being covered. Now, since we've gone into it and started doing it, other companies have started doing similar stuff. So we have been, I guess, to some degree, a instigator. So there's other one or two other organizations that we're aware of that are doing similar work. And that that is basically taking the peer group model, like this did or what they used to call tech, who's the kind of the granddaddy of all the, the uh, executive peer group organizers and providers, and taking that same format but having the aspiration of the members not be just about becoming better uh, managers of their companies, but to become more conscious as leaders, to become become more evolved. Um, and that's been an idea I've had for a number of years. I just had to find the right partner, and I finally did a couple of years ago with Tom. Tom Eddington is my partner. 
So we thought we had something unique. Right now, it's, it's still unique as far as I can see, although there's one or two other organizations that are doing similar work, and we're very close with them. I've also found that they are very eager to collaborate, and one of the tests of being the real deal for me is if somebody's willing to let go, let go of the tight-fistedness about intellectual property and be willing to share, because it's going to take a lot of us doing stuff. We're beyond the era of <clears throat> this is mine and I have it copyrighted, et cetera. That's not going to work anymore. Um, the other thing I want to comment on is that you referred to um, the vicious cycle by uh, not having uh, any better leadership. And I want to change the perspective on that slightly. I'd say it's more, more than a vicious cycle. It's actually going downhill. Uh, we're getting more and more signs that all of our organizations, all of the systems that we have put in place to make our work supposedly easier and, and uh, easier for the people involved, is that all these organizations, whether it be healthcare or business organizations or the economy, they're all in some state of collapse, some early stage, some later stage, some that a lot of people would, would agree on, some that may very, maybe at this point very few would agree on. But almost all the institutions that we have created, the human-made systems, that systems that we put in place because it theoretically made our job easier, are falling apart. And the consulting community, of course, is making a lot of money trying to keep them shored up. And that's the bad news, and that's the news that gets all the attention. So that gets the headlines because people like to publish and read, uh, for the most part, negative news. But where I see the hope and what keeps me active and keeps me going and keeps my spirits up is on an individual level. I've never seen so many people uh, working on themselves to wake up and see the roses, so to speak. They're, they're in the process of waking up and percolating and growing up, as my book title uh, infers. Uh, so there's a lot of individuals that are coming to the realization that the old ways don't work and we have to come up with new ways. Even if we haven't gotten created yet, we have to start operating as if they are in place and helping them get into place. For sure. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of the idea of, um, you know, that transformation is an inside job in the sense that we first transform our relationship to ourselves at, at the level of individual self-expression and then that creates new possibilities for self in relationship and then that creates new possibilities for self-expression at the level of group and organization and then that creates new possibilities for expression of self as community and on and on and on and on and so it's uh, you know the implications of this hero's journey are profound and the the willingness and the ability to make those shifts and to because at every new level there are new skill sets and new ways of being that are required in order to be effective but it requires you know like like we're talking about really beginning with yourself at a very deep level and one of the things i thought about when i was younger and I was looking at where I wanted to target my impact. At a point in time back in the uh, um, early 80s, I considered maybe going this route of trying to impact um, 
organizations and organizational leaders. And it, I started laughing because I had this epiphany that if most executives became enlightened, they would, um, they would become self-employed, that they would let go of their companies because their companies were just fundamentally dysfunctional. They were just fundamentally built on um, assumptions about reality and human beings in the future that just uh, don't stand up to truth. And um, that I had this vision of working with these executives and then having them massively resign. And I started laughing and I said, well, I guess that's, that's not the direction I want to go yet. But it could be that um, the world we're living in today is, is a different matrix, is a different set of possibilities and that it is possible. You know, we're starting to see more and more um, organizations and organizational leaders who are really, really willing to reinvent their company from the DNA up. And that's very exciting. I've done some reading. I mean, it's not my field, but I've done some reading about what Tony Shea has done at Zappos. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I've done some reading in reinventing organizations and I've done some reading about um, the people that are experimenting with holacracy. And I've been following uh, Werner Erhardt's work on integrity and leadership and organizations. And it seems like there is an increased willingness to, re to, to really go down to the DNA of organizations and really question everything and, that must be very exciting for someone with your focus. Yes, when, when I see somebody actually making that attempt, it, it is very exciting. Um, unfortunately, in, in many cases, uh, the system, when you get too close to the nerves in, in, an, organ, in an organism, a system, a, a company culture, sometimes it bites back. It'll let you go so far. And even even start to mimic the idea, the behavior of a enlightened organization or a transformed organization, and uh, but it can actually endure that for a while, and then it might bite back and uh, sure. surpri surprise everybody. The question about people leaving: when you start having asking people to wake up, uh, you're not waking them up; they have to do the waking up, as you implied earlier. But that's a big risk. We, we had a, a conversation the other day with some of our um, host candidates for our roundtables. And one of the discussions is where do we show a metric? How do we show that this work is worth supporting for the guy that writes the check in the organization? So where, what, what's the metric? Right. And, and one of the metrics is some people say, I'm out of here. I mean, that's the likely, uh, likely outcome is some people will say, this is not for me. Uh, I, I'm going to go off and start my own company. I'm going to go off to a different company. I'm going to go off and do whatever. And that's part of waking up. And people do that in the transformation movement, as you well know, even in marriages. They may decide they're living a, a life they don't want to be living and they they change spouses or they get divorced or whatever. And that's that's a danger, you might say, is the it's you're always at risk of that when you do a profound change to an individual. That person may wake up and decide this is not what I want. I'm not living my my truth. I need to live my truth. I need to make some big changes. 
So that, that's a strong possibility. But at the same time, that or that individual can say, you know what? I'm close enough to the top to have some influence. I know two or three of my buddies here that think the same way I do. I think we can change this company, like Zappos did. And right. and right. and we can do this. And it's exciting. It's not only exciting because it's good for business, but it's exciting because it aligns the system that I'm working in every day, that I contribute to every day with my own sense of soul or purpose. You know, your comments bring up a couple of thoughts for me. One is that sometimes the best way to grow is through consolidation. You know, sometimes pruning the tree is exactly what's needed to get down to sort of this sort of Plutonian concentrated essence and then allow some new life to emerge in the springtime, so to speak. It's, uh, I've seen that happen many times in my life and in other people's lives. And uh, the other thought that came up as you were talking, uh, and it's a big topic, is this whole issue of metrics and of how you determine whether a metric is a really valid way of assessing what it is that you want to assess. Like, for example, um, if you look at a really dysfunctional field like economics, a lot of times there's a correlation between how dysfunctional something is and how the metric that's being used to measure success has lost its validity. Like, for example, in economics, using something like gross national product or gross domestic product to assess the health of an economy is ridiculous. Like, for example, if I create a um, a medicine or a vaccine that people have to buy, but then that vaccine or medicine makes them sick, and then they have to go to the doctor to get a remedy, and then that remedy causes another problem, and then they've got to go to another doctor, the gross national product is going to go up, but the level of health of that society is going to be going down. So I've been very interested in this question of uh, how you how you develop and assess the validity and the functionality of a metric to really measure what it is you're really wanting to measure. And uh, it reminds me of the work that was done several decades ago. Are you familiar with the work of Hazel Henderson? Of course, yeah, I know Hazel. Yeah. So Hazel, as you know, she was involved in uh, addressing this issue of how can economists develop more valid ways of assessing the impact we're having on our society and on the planet. And it's really an interesting question, and I'm glad you brought it up because, um, you know, human beings and organizations act mostly unconsciously um, in a way that's correlated with a combination of their values and their ways of assessing whether they're in alignment with their values or not. And very few people and organizations question, even if they do question their values, very often they don't question their uh, methods of assessment, which are mostly unconscious. And I wonder if you've had to put that whole issue of assessment, of, of metrics, up on the mat for conscious conversation in your 
work with people? It, it comes up, it seems like in cycles, David. Uh, it came up with our host in the conference. We've been having uh, two conversations a month, conference calls with our hosts for the past year or so. And this is the first time this, the metric question has come into play uh, in this particular year, but I've had that conversation with lots of people over the years, probably um, every three or four years, it seems to get raised. And it's a, it's a continuing challenge. And part of it is there's, there's, there's a human need almost, there's certainly a human tendency to want to measure everything. Uh, including how conscious we are. And when you have something that's, the word ineffable means it cannot be defined in that, in that terminology. It's, it's in a different paradigm. So people who are trying to uh, come up with spiritual indexes, for instance, or the emotional, emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, and so forth. There's a guy in Romania that started what he calls a consciousness quotient. Uh, and there, as I can tell from uh, seeing some of his early work and seeing the final outcome is he's, he's doing a metric on, or a quotient as he calls it, on awareness, on how aware somebody is. But that doesn't get into the whole issue of consciousness. Um, but it's, it's the human tendency to wanna to measure everything and it, not everything is measurable in that sense. So to me, if you have a, uh, if you have a metric to me, when you look at ineffability, like, like in, in defining consciousness, we don't define consciousness per se at Future Shapers, but we show a lot of things that isn't, a lot of things that it is, or it's like, and eventually if you kind of squint your eyes through all of this, all of these dots and all of these matrices, you're getting a sense of what it is. There's, there's an old saying, and it's, this shows my age somewhat, but it's an old joke about the judge that says, I, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. It's, it's kind of like that when you run across somebody who's conscious and awake. You know it when you're, when you're with them. You're, you feel it. But it's hard to say what it is exactly that, it, that, me, that measures in our metric system in a way that shows up. To me, it's largely anecdotal. It's my, what's my experience of this man? What's my experience of this person? What's my experience of this process? What's my experience of working in this organization? And I don't need a metric to tell me it's, it's good or it's healthy or it's aligned with me. I, I just have an experience that says, this is valid. This works for me. Mm -hmm. And some other person can come in and say, this doesn't work for me. Um, and that's their, that, that's their assessment of it. Uh, so some it works for, some it doesn't. That's kind of the human condition as far as I can see. That's the same reason we marry certain people and don't marry other people. Uh, we have to have that kind of chemistry and alignment on a level that's far vaster than mere metrics. Well, you know, you, you keep bringing up really interesting dimensions and issues. Like, like this to me brings up the whole issue of ways of knowing and ways of being. So, for example, our culture is very into trying to know things by knowing about things and describing things and measuring things and like that. And so people get paid a lot of money to do that and people get rewarded for that and people feel comfortable with you when you're 
when you're pursuing life in that way. And like you say, that has limitations. And then you're contrasting that with um, more of a direct knowing, being in the presence of something. And I think one of the contributions of transformation in terms of the distinctions of transformational work is that it 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 brings to consciousness and kind of gives people permission to not have it be one way or the other. You know, that sometimes it's useful to critique things and think about things. And sometimes it's useful to let go of that part of the mind and to just be and to just be present. And like you said, when you're in the presence with someone of someone who who is really being present, if you're willing to be present, it makes it a lot easier to be present. And then when you are present, that opens up a, a more direct way of knowing. And in our society, that way of knowing isn't talked about that much. And I don't think we know very much about that as a society. And we don't even know that we don't know very much about that as a society. So we're kind of even blind to that. And I find whether it's an individual or a relationship or whatever, that until that distinction is made between uh, knowing about something and just being with something in a way where there's a oneness and the truth of it reveals itself, until that distinction comes alive for somebody, you really can't go any further. Yeah, you're reminding me of the uh, distinction that Werner made back in the 70s about the distinction between the menu and the meal. Quite often, people are, and, and I, what I'm seeing right now is there's a lot of interest in conscious leadership. The term has, I feel I've been a part of a movement for, say, 30 or 40 years, but it's not been go, much of a movement. There's the movement part is there's been a, a gill, there's been a group of people that have been writing and talking about this for a long time. But my sense of it, it from the people I know is that I'm part of a club of some sort. Some people die off and some people come into it. But until three or four years ago, it essentially was somewhat stagnant in terms of its membership. Not that I know everybody, but just based on the circle that I'm part, the circles that I'm part of. And in the last four years, I have met, as I said before, hundreds of people that are getting into this field, much, many much younger, which is great, very refreshing news, but also that the field has doubled or tripled. Uh, so I feel like there is actually a movement now, as opposed to calling it a movement. But it's what I'm not sure about is if it's a movement in talking and writing and reading about conscious leadership versus getting in and doing it. Uh, and my jury is still out on that. So there's a difference between talking about it, that what you were saying earlier about being about something and defining it. And I have this article about it. I have this article. There's this person that wrote this about it and so forth. All, all that is very interesting to the mind. But where is it? Where does the rubber meet the road? Where does that knowledge, where does that idea, where does that paradigm um, meet the road? Where, where does it actually come into play that, and there's incidents of, of this happening. There, there's stories that make the news, the, the latest one being um, the founder of Facebook 
and giving all this money and so much of his wealth away. So there's pockets of this where people have these insights and do these wonderful deeds, but it hasn't shifted the consciousness of the collective as yet. Are you familiar with the work of Bob Dunham? I am. I've known Bob for a good many years. I'm not, I can't say I'm real familiar with his work. He moved, he moved to uh, Colorado away from the Bay Area some years ago, so I haven't been in touch with him as much since he moved. So I'm really impressed with Bob's work. I thought of you when you were talking just now, thought of him when you were talking just now, and I've actually interviewed Bob on this podcast series. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Bob and his work, and what he's done is he's taken this whole area of conscious leadership and uh, made some powerful distinctions and has developed a set of practices, uh, skill sets that can actually be learned and developed rather than just talking about it. So you might be interested in reconnecting with Bob. If you do a Google search for Bob Dunham, you'll connect with his, uh, his current company and, uh, he's doing some wonderful work, uh, along the lines that I think you're pointing at that is really needed, which is not just talking about it, but actually, um, providing, um, training in skill sets mm -hmm. that, that leaders actually have to master in order to be effective servant leaders. Yeah, David, I wasn't meaning to imply that there's no one doing this. I'm just saying that the vast majority, I, I, I did an editorial in my newsletter oh, a couple of years ago, I guess, uh, taking on the issue that most of the leadership development programs were book learning, basically, and very therefore very ineffective. And I had two very instant responses from two friends of mine. Most of my friends are consultants and offer various uh, consulting services. And two of them that offer truly transformational work, and I know they do, but they took major issue because I was, they took my article to be in, all inclusive, that anybody doing leadership development work was therefore wasting, wasting taxpayer, wasting companies' money. And they took great exception to that. So I've modified the writing that I've done since then on conscious leadership to say that I'm not, I'm not throwing out all the babies with all the bathwater here. But yeah, Bob, Bob had me uh, speak to his, invited me up to speak to one of his cohorts, uh, probably was 15 years ago. So I know he was doing some pretty incredible work back then. So I, I recently had a phone call with him uh, recently as in like four or five months ago. And he seems to be still on that path and making more headway and growing, growing his own work as most of us do. Uh, to kind of coincide with where we're doing, how we're doing. You know, another thought I had is that, you know, the there's an old expression is that the greatest leader is the greatest servant. And, um, you know, whatever leadership capacities I've developed and embodied, I can't imagine having gotten to that place without having had a lot of practice in serving other leaders, you know, in other words, learning how to, uh, this doesn't quite capture it. Maybe you have better words, learning how to be an empowered follower uh, or being, or being what I needed to become so that I could be led so that I was coachable, 
was a really important part of me becoming the leader that I am. And I don't know if everyone who wants to be a conscious leader necessarily has been willing or able to go through that process of learning how to serve another leader so that you experience it from that position in the game. I think that's really important. Well, to me, to me, David, to be a conscious leader in today's world has nothing to do with position or title or authority. It is, is standing for a value. And if we see something that needs to be done, you step in and do it, whether you're the CEO or you're a new hire. Uh, and to me, the paradigm that we're getting into is that we're all leaders, we're all conscious, and of course, if we're all leaders, we're also all followers, but we're, we're at di- followers at different times. So you and I might be on the same team in a certain uh, business, and there might be times when you're the leader on something that you happen to see and you have a lot of juice for and there might be other, and I follow you, and there might be other times when I see something that needs some leadership, and I step in, and then you follow me. That's, that, to me, is just part of being conscious and being a leader in, in this new paradigm that we're talking about. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up, because uh, this issue of fluid kind of management, so to speak, where your sense of identity isn't defined by your role, but it's more connected to your commitment. And you have flexibility in relation to the roles that you take on based on what would work in that situation. I think that's a fundamental shift in identity that by identifying that that shift in identity, that way of knowing who you are, identifying that that's such an important shift uh, is very valuable because you can then more consciously bring it into whatever you're doing with people. Mm. Yeah. Um, You know, to even just talk about it, to like the way we're languaging this right now, just to be able to identify that that's a critical part of the path of becoming an excellent leader is first in yourself and then empowering others to to discover the ways in which their current sense of identity is wrapped up in positions and then to consider the possibility that there's another way to know yourself that is independent of any particular position. And then that opens up a whole new possibility of knowing of how you know who you are, which opens up this possibility of being much more fluid in your functioning and being able to play different roles. And that kind of fluidity I think is one of the keys in effective living and leadership for the coming times. I mean, this whole shift from being stuck in a position to having a more fluid sense of life and who we are. I mean, I see this reflected everywhere in terms of 
quantum physics is telling us the same thing. Uh, psychology, the cutting edge of psychology, is telling us the same thing right now. And it seems like the universe is almost screaming at us to let go of trying to define who we are by any particular role or position. And if you had an organization where all the key players in that organization had that capacity to know who they are independent of a particular position, that to me would create a possibility for that organization that wouldn't be possible without that. Well, you're talking when you when you become conscious, part of what goes you lose, part of what you give up is a sense of an external identity of any kind. What do you mean by external? By by some label, by what you do, who you're married to, where you live, what your title is, uh, what you were trained in, what your degree is in, etc. That if, to the degree that you identify with that, then you are not home, basically. And you are your ego, your your soul is over in that identity. Right. That's why people get so upset sometimes when you challenge their uh, ideology, is they uh, they identify so much with the ideology that as soon as you say anything that that they perceive is a threat to that ideology, they see it as a threat to themselves, and they get very steamed about it, whether it's left or right, uh, Christian or or non-Christian, Christian or Muslim, whatever. But when people get so identified with their cause, their idea, uh, it, is, it is literally themselves out there. So you can't have a conversation with them about it because you're, they see you attacking their position or their identity, and therefore you're attacking them. Yeah, Part of being conscious is just seeing that you are yourself, you're you, you're you a to use my language, not anybody else's language, but the unique part of you that's God, that unique self of you, as Mark Gaffney might say, um, is enough identity. You don't have to be identified with the clothes you wear or what your image is or how long your hair is or what kind of makeup you use or whether you have glasses or not or whatever. Certainly not with your business title or your degree. Exactly. Uh, just. I want to shift gears a little bit, John, and uh, I want to share about an interest of mine and see if you have an interest in it, and if so, kind of what you've done with it. So as I get older, one of the things I have become more interested in has been this issue of looking at each generation and looking at, okay, every generation has sort of a destiny, and every generation sort of has strengths and sort of has blind spots and challenges. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm a baby boomer, and I've looked at that a lot in my own generation, but I've also looked at it from the point of view of wanting to have really powerful relationships with people in other generations and how we can contribute to each other. And I, I call that inquiry, that field that I've been looking at, um, intergenerational cross-pollination. <laughs> and I, I, I look at the millennials and I look at the possibilities for what they can be. And I look at the possibilities for uh, powerful relationships between the millennials and the baby boomers. 
And obviously it's challenging, but I see a lot of potential alignment there. And, you know, the fact that the millennials are so comfortable with technology and the fact that their sense of time compression, you know, where they can get a message out to a thousand people about where they are in 10 seconds, almost like a swarm of bees, you know, the, the potential for um, for magnifying impact is just enormous. But on the other hand, uh, millennials have had a lot of challenges and in my opinion, have a lot of blind spots that also are concerning to me. And so one of the things that I'm doing as I get older is I'm consciously looking to partner with conscious millennials and organizations that are designed to empower millennials to, you know, almost for me to be in a position almost like as an elder where I have a lot to offer, but I also have a lot to receive. And I'm just wondering if you've given some thought to or looked at or taken any action in terms of uh, this whole issue of different generations relating to each other differently. I mean, even even at the level of, you know, when my mom uh, got sick toward the end of her life and, you know, we had to put her in a, in a, in an assisted living place and she was basically just around other people that were kind of in the same shape and age as her. And I didn't think that was very healthy. And I thought about other generations where, you know, you could have three or four generations of, of, of a family living close together and there was more of a flow there. I, I've thought a lot about this and I was wondering if it's an area you've thought about and if so, uh, anything you'd like to contribute to that whole area? Uh, yes. Um, I want to, I want to address one of the last things you said first though. You said I have to put my parent, my mother in a rest or a assisted living facility. And I want to challenge your use of the word you had to, uh, you're choosing to. And that I see a lot going on with my friends. Most of my friends are your age in their 60s. And many of them have been having challenges with their parents. And largely the parents live some other place. So a big chore they have is going to the parents' location um, and arranging for them to, to be moved. And as you know, most of these people do not want to be moved. They want to stay where they are. So there's been a upsurge of businesses. Uh, a friend of mine's wife actually had the franchise here for San Francisco where they can keep you in your home and they just supply you with services. So it's less expensive to going into, or maybe it's not less expensive, but it's probably equivalent of going into an assisted living facility, except you get to stay in your own house and you have all these various professionals supporting you. But it's, it's not, it is a choice we're making, and we're making more now than we were years ago. There's a, um, a phrase in San Francisco when I was growing up, is a lot of the houses here are, three, are garage with, with living quarters above, two or three stories above the garage. And in the back of the garage or the basement would be, in a, people would add an apartment. And I'd say more than half the flats or half the houses in San Francisco probably have what they call in-law apartments. And the reason they have that name is when the folk got older, they moved in with the family. 
I had a friend years ago who actually built a new home. And one wing of the house was for his mother and father to live in. So their family was still together. But largely, and I think it starts by sending our kids off to school, we farm out our kids, you know, to the industrial system of mass education. We farm out our old people to um, assisted living facilities, but we're not, we're not taking care of them directly. We're taking care of them financially, but they're not aware. All they know is they're in this home all of a sudden with a bunch of old, other old people. And of course, most of them don't think they're that old. So I think, I think there is a way that we, we've evolved over the last two or three generations where we've kind of gotten a throwaway society about our old people. Um, we don't value them. I remember years ago uh, being at a World Business Academy meeting and the speaker talked about living, being raised in a village in Africa and that the elders in the village were their library. That's who they relied upon for wisdom. And that seemed to so far a cry from how we do. We say, oh, you're over a certain age. We farm you out. You're on Medicare and we send you off to an assisted living facility. So that I wanted to, to express myself on that, on that one issue. On the issue of intergenerational, I was having a conversation just a few weeks ago with somebody and I found myself using the phrase intergenerational reliability. Uh, and I kind of, as a writer, whenever I hear something kind of new out of my mouth, I kind of perk up and say, huh, what's that about? And it's, it's getting to the place where we're, we are moving towards a place in some areas, specifically technology, where you can have a 70 or 80 year old man learning technology from a three-year-old grandson. Uh, and that we don't we didn't look at these young young people as being teachers of ours, uh, although I do remember Jack Welch when he was at GE saying they were starting to mentor each other, not just older people mentoring younger people, but the younger people because of technology. Of course, this goes back again twenty years. Um, the younger people were actually mentoring the older people because they were having trouble adapting to the technology. So I think when we get to the place where nobody's labeled specifically uh, outmoded or too young or whatever. And we just realized that we're all in a different generation and we rely on one another. And that I think is part of, again, both the new organization and the new society is that we actually start relying on each other, I mean, explicitly um, and take care of one another. I mean, that's basic indigenous wisdom uh, applied to modern society. We can do that. And it takes all the generations to do that. I'm, I'm I don't like, I'm not happy about all the, 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 the labels we've given the various generations. You mentioned that you're a boomer and somebody else is a millennial. Those are, those are handy labels for typing at somebody. And I'm a, I'm a member of the silent generation. I, I, I'm aware of that, but I'd rather just see us, you know, look at ourselves as all people and that we have, we have different strengths, we have different weaknesses, we've had different experiences. You know, the kids getting growing up today will never know what it's like to drive his own, I guess, sports car, but they don't know, a lot of them can't drive a stick shift. A lot of them don't remember typewriters. Um, there's a lot of things that the older people have experienced that might be useful, and a lot of young people have interest in things and have grown up with, and I know there's a phrase for it, I can't think of it at the time, but whether you learn something or you were born into it. There's a, a phrase for that about technology. 
Uh, I think that's my rant on that. Okay. So uh, just getting back to the situation with my mother, just to give you the bigger picture, because I did definitely edit the story. I want to go back and give a fuller picture because it brings up some other issues. And that is um, what ended up happening was as my mother's dementia progressed and my father passed away, um, it took me about a year of visiting my mom's home for about one weekend a month to just go through about 40 years of documents just to try to get her affairs in order. And then we sold her house and we moved down to the same, we moved to another city. We moved her to the same city. We had her in an independent living situation for a couple of years, then an assisted living situation for a couple of years. And then as her dementia progressed, the next step would have been to put her in kind of an Alzheimer's type of unit. And then when I checked out what that would be like, I decided that um, that would not be good, uh, that she would lose the will to live in that situation. And so I had a conversation with my wife and I said, honey, I'm going to ask you something that's going to be the most difficult thing I'm probably ever going to ask you. And you don't have to say yes. And I explained the whole context. And I said, you know, I'd like us to try to take care of my mother for as long as we can. And so then for the next almost five years, we were the caretakers for my mother. And that was very stressful. Um, financially, it was very stressful to me, to my wife, to our marriage. Um, and yet we did it. And then she went on to have a couple of strokes and we couldn't care for her anymore. And that was kind of a blessing in disguise. And then she was in a nursing facility for a couple of months. And then she was in a board and care facility about 20 minutes from our home for the last year, year and a quarter of her life. And so um, this brings up a lot of issues because certainly the financial forces at play uh, are very important in this whole drama. The level of medical, the state of the art of medicine and preventive medicine, obviously, is a big issue here. Uh, it brings up, uh, you know, architecture, design of housing, living quarters, urban planning, communities. It brings up so many questions. But I just wanted to just say for the for the sake of the discussion that beforehand I was giving you a very abbreviated shorthand. It's a much it's a much larger story that has a lot of interesting implications for what it's going to take to have communities that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this can get into the communal living also, where we collectively take care of one another. We take care of one another's kids. We take care of one another's elderly. Um, have you looked at the whole intentional community field at all? I haven't been part of it. I've been aware of it. There's a um, magazine that comes out about four times a year that's very high quality, that's put out by the foundation or whatever for intentional communities. And that that movement is really maturing as well. And then the co-working movement also is coming on. And that's kind of exciting as well. And, and you know, as these 
more communal endeavors start to start to come to the fore, it really brings up the whole issue of boundaries of you know if we're not defining ourselves positionally or in an ego based way, you know we don't want to just sort of dissolve into some neptunian jelly like pseudo unity space you know there needs to be boundaries but they need to be much more fluid and they need to be based on other considerations and uh as a holistic doctor i'm very interested in this issue of boundaries because if you look at a cell and you look at a cell membrane one way to look at a cell membrane is that a healthy cell has a way of assessing its own identity and its own environment in a way where the cell membrane lets in good things, keeps bad things out, uh, sends signals to the cell to make good things and to send them out at appropriate times. So this whole issue, whether you're looking at it physiologically, like at, like a cellular biologist would look at it, or if you're looking at it like a psychologist would look at it in terms of a person having healthy boundaries, or you look at it the way an urban planner would look at it in terms of having a nice balance of public and private spaces. I think this whole issue of establishing and maintaining and reassessing appropriate boundaries is another huge, fascinating area of study that I would imagine has profound implications in terms of organizational structure as well. When I was at the World Business Academy, back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, our slogan, our tagline was responsibility for the whole. And there was a fair amount of discussion about whether or not that was too harsh or too big or would turn people off. To my knowledge, I think they're still using that as their tagline. Um, but responsibility for the whole means responsibility for everything. Being willing to be responsible for everything. Um, and, and so now we're getting into this realm of oneness, not connectedness, but oneness. And recently I was in a conversation with some friends about this. And I said, you know, when you get to the place, and this is right after the Paris terrorist attacks, when you get to the place where you say the members of ISIS are part of me, um, that's, that's a big bite, especially when we're so used to in our culture of demonizing them. Uh, or demonizing anybody that does anything wrong as opposed to they're part of us. Um, so I think I'm, I'm, what I'm saying here, David, is that um, my advocacy would be that we, we get rid of the idea of boundaries altogether in a healthy way, not in a codependent way. Um, so we're, we are, we're not invadable necessarily as codependents allow themselves to be but we are responsible for everything now we we may be accountable for one little piece of something but we're ultimately responsible for all of it well you know that's the that's the great paradox of human existence that's a great paradox of the spiritual path is on one hand we each are a unique expression of the one. We have a unique love. And yet on the other hand, there is one spirit that's indivisible and unity is, is period. 
And that, you know, that, that just is the way it is. And, you know, from the point of view of the linear mind, that's a, that's a, that's a profound, that's, that's a quandary. That's a, that's a paradox that uh, can't be resolved at that level of logic, but yet, you know, it's, it's being with those issues in an open kind of way, I think that allow us to transcend that level of mind and open up to, to what you're pointing at, which, you know, of, of this realization of unity and, um, you know, one way of doing that that has been helpful to me and to many others, I think, has been to stand on the shoulders of the work of Carl Jung, who talked in great deal and wrote in great detail uh, from a psychological point of view about the shadow. And if you take that idea and you combine it with the uh, psychological principle of projection, the idea that whatever aspects of our consciousness we disown, we tend to project into our world, into our body, into our relationships, into our perceptions. That, for me at least, and for many of my students, has been a great window or a great door to begin to go through that opens up this realization of what you're pointing at, this realization of unity. Because if you talk to somebody who's immersed in duality, dualistic perceptions about this idea of being responsible for all of it. It's not going to build a bridge and they're just going to think you're crazy. So, you know, I feel that it's incumbent upon anybody that wants to take a stand for non-dualism in our culture, because our culture is based on, you know, a Cartesian dualism, that we need to be responsible for building effective bridges, which goes back to the comment I made earlier about the importance of becoming uh, good innovators. To me, that's part of building a bridge of understanding to the collective that you're intending to serve so that the, the gradient of your communications just doesn't blow people away and just create more of a disconnect. Yeah. And that's the art. I mean, that's the challenge, I think, of being on the cutting edge of social transformation. And, you know, I, I, I disagree with you in terms of the goal being to do away with all boundaries. Uh, uh, for me, um, I want functional boundaries. I want purposeful boundaries that are not attached mm -hmm. you know yeah that's what i was meaning by accountability areas of accountability okay so you're making that distinction there that's important between accountability and responsibility yeah and and also you know i i am a recovering um codependent proud member of al-anon for a couple of years uh, so I know what it's like to be codependent and lose your identity into somebody else. That's another place that people can identify is with the other person. Yes. Um, but so I'm not suggesting that that people not have boundaries there either. 
you, you need to have boundaries just for to be healthy. But in terms of responsibility levels, yes. And uh, I hadn't said that before. I said it here, so I, I'm a little awkward in the saying of it. But thank, okay. thank you for inserting what you're inserting because that helps me clarify it. So next time I say it, I can be a little clearer about it. Well, John, we're kind of moving toward the end of our time today, and I want to I want to turn it over to you again and give you the floor, give you an opportunity to express anything you'd like to express uh, as we move toward completing this conversation and also to make sure that, you know, people have your contact information. You know, uh, one of the things I liked about this conversation is that it didn't have an agenda other than to be of service. And so I kind of felt like we were kind of a couple of uh, jazz musicians just sort of um, just sort of exploring and jamming, jamming. And I like the fact that, you know, it's kind of like life. It doesn't have a, a tidy ending, but it, um, it, it's, it, you know, our conversation has been very real and very uh, powerful and very respectful. And I really have enjoyed it, but I do want to give you the time and the space that you need to share anything you want to share to really complete this conversation for yourself and anything else you would want to share with our listeners. And then also make sure you give contact information for people that would like to connect more deeply with you and your work. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, well, first of all, let's get the contact information out, the logistics. Uh, my email is john, J-O-H-N, at Rhenish, R-E-N-E-S-C-H.com. Uh, my Future Shapers email is john at futureshapers, all one word, dot com. You've already given my website, but there's also the Future Shapers website, which is futureshapers.com. Um, Future Shapers and I co-host a monthly meeting here in San Francisco called Meet the Visionary. So anybody that's in the Bay Area amongst your listeners, uh, we have a monthly event on the first Tuesday of the month where I interview uh, various thought leaders. I've had Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, a CEO from one of the tech firms in Silicon Valley that almost nobody's ever heard of by the name of Sam Chan. Lynn Twist was my guest in November, and Mark Lesser, the CEO of the uh, Google startup Silly, a Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, was my guest last month. Uh, so every first Tuesday of the month, we have an event there. Uh, that's also available, uh, viewable on the Future Shapers website. Um, I, I do have a newsletter that's free, which you've already mentioned, but it's it's available through my website, renish.com. I love getting feedback from the readers of the newsletter or my blogs, because I have blogs on Renish, I have blogs on Future Shapers. Um, and it looks like I'm going to be getting a couple, I'm working with a couple of people about doing a, another book or three. Uh, three people want to have had me co-write books with them so but those there's nothing imminent about to come out at this point so the getting the great growing up is still my most recent book um the last thing i think i would say is that uh, this interest in conscious leadership is I, i'd like to see people 
really look at themselves in terms of their interest in the subject and see how they how it's going to change their lives, what they're going to start doing differently. And I had a great conversation with my guest in January, Diana Chapman, who's um, a woman I met a few years ago, uh, even though she's here in uh, Santa Cruz area, so she's in, in my backyard. And Diana and her two partners do a thing called Conscious Leadership Groups, uh, which was the initial original name for Future Shapers, was Conscious Leadership Roundtables, way back when I thought of it 10 or 12 years ago. But Diana's also, they've written a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And Diana and Tom, my partner, and I had a great conversation the day before Thanksgiving. And she said something very simple. It's like most of the times when you have a flash of wisdom, it's usually somebody's throwaway comment. Some, sometimes they don't even remember saying it. In this case, we made a big deal out of it, so she does remember saying it. But she said to be a conscious leader is a change in lifestyle. And somehow that word lifestyle had never occurred to me before. And when we're talking about conscious leadership and we're writing about conscious leadership and we're reading conscious leadership, it's just a change in what we're reading and talking about. It's not a lifestyle change. When you agree to be a, a parent, when you agree to go into the clergy, you, this is lifestyle change. When you move to a different country, this is usually a lifestyle change. So being a coming a conscious leader is not something that you just are interested in. It's something that you're committed to with the same chutzpah and the same courage and the same uh, degree of commitment as you would if you were uh, going into the clergy, getting married, having children, um, whatever. Take working for the nonprofit community as opposed to the for-profit community, etc. Um, so I'm seeing conscious leadership these days more as a lifestyle, a way to be rather than just something to be interested in. And I ended up writing an article very quickly, which is in my December issue of my newsletter called, uh, I, I used a colloquial name for it, I think it's Living the Kick-Ass Commitment, uh, something like that. And with that, David, I think I want to thank you for the time and exposure on your show and appreciate your interest in my work. You're very welcome, John. How can we access that sort of Cliff Notes version of the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leaders? The Conscious Leadership Group or Conscious Leadership Forum has a one-pager on their website, which I've been using for several years in our training process with their permission. So they have a 15-page, a 15 Commitments one-pager uh, on the website, which you can download. What is their website? Uh, Conscious Leadership Forum, I think. And then they they got together last year and decided, well, let's this this 15 commitments is pretty popular with all of our people. Let's do a book on it. So then they wrote a book about the 15 commitments. But the, you can get a one-page version of it from their website. It's downloadable. So we would we would put in the search engine Conscious Leadership Forum. Yes. Okay. Or, or 15 commitments might also work. Okay. John, thank you so much for our time together. Just uh, want to let the listeners know that you've been listening to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, 
where we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I think you can get a sense of how connected those three aspects are, how you really, if you really go in deep to one, you do get involved in the other two. And uh, today we've been speaking with John Rennish, whose passion and expertise is in the area of conscious leadership. And uh, I'm very grateful, John, for our time together and grateful for you, the listener. We do it for you and it couldn't happen without you. We appreciate your support for this non-commercial program. If you like it, if you love it, please share it with other people. Uh, write a review on iTunes. Give it a five-star rating. There's a donation button on cuttingedgedoc.com if you appreciate this type of non-commercial programming and want to support it. You can always communicate with me by email at drdava excuse me, D-R-D-A-V-I-D. That's Dr. David at cuttingedgedoc.com. And so on behalf of myself and my assistant, Brianna, who helps to make all this happen, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. For joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to cuttingedgedoc.com. That's cuttingedgedoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.